Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I know the bulletin says we'll be in Revelation 22. I'm just going to read the first few verses in Revelation 1 uh, to begin our time together in God's Word. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Well, this evening is our conclusion to our study in the book of Revelation, and I told you I was going to do something of a, of a flyover review. My, my purpose is not to, uh, to review millennial views or interpretive principles or talk about the symbolism per se, but rather ask the question, how should the study of the book of Revelation impact our lives? What should be the practical uh, imp- impact that it has on us Uh, What difference should it make that we have spent time studying the book of Revelation? Now, one of the commentators that I've relied very heavily on is uh, called uh, Triumph of the Lamb by a commentator named Dennis Johnson. It's a more recent uh, commentary. And I had told you weeks ago I was planning to do this flyover, uh, pull-it-all-together message. Well, when I I looked just uh, a little over a week ago at at his uh, comments at the end of the book, and it was like, this is exactly what I want to say. His summary was was, uh, really, really exactly what I had in mind, only much more articulate. Uh, He actually, the beginning of the conclusion, he asked the question, what should this book do to us? And uh, so, tonight, I'm going to draw very heavily very heavily on Johnson's conclusion. So don't go, hmm, I wonder if Pastor Jamie is, is uh, plagiarizing. No, I'm not. I'm telling you where it came from. Uh, but I am using another man's work, and I want you to know that. So something I want you to notice here in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 2, uh, this, this, this revelation is given to John who bore, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. The word see, or the past tense, saw, occurs over 50 times in the book of Revelation. It is a very visual book. The word looked, and I looked, or look, appears another 14 times. So, over 64 times it refers to this, the, the vision that is seen, that is looked upon, that is gazed upon. It's, it's about these visions of what John saw and the proclamation of that which he heard. And so, in light of what John saw and what he heard and what he describes to us in this book, I want us to recognize that things are not always as they appear. And so, I want to challenge you to think biblically and to look at life differently, particularly in five key ways, five key areas that we must look differently because we have Uh, considered and studied the book of Revelation. First of all, we want to look at our situation in its true perspective. The world around us tells us this is what is real. What you can see, what you can hear, what you can touch with your hands, that is what's real. And we're inclined to interpret life by our senses. 
what we see, what we hear. If I can't see it, if I can't hear it, I can't touch it, I'm not so sure that it's real. And then you come to the book of Revelation, and we read these fantastic symbols and these descriptions that defy depiction. We read of great battles and hideous beasts and a seductive prostitute and angels and demons and living creatures bowing down before the throne of God in heaven. We read of a lion who is also a lamb who was slain. And it sounds almost too fantastic to be true, but it is true. And in fact, it is more true and more real than the world around us that we can see and handle and hear and touch. The problem is we live between two worlds. We are currently living in the first heaven and the first earth that are under the curse, that are destined to be destroyed. But we are also citizens of the new heaven and the new earth. But the new heaven and the new earth are not yet. That's our citizenship. That's our home. That, that is who we are, and yet we're not there yet. We are in the between this already and not yet uh, that theologians talk about. And there's all manner of paradoxes in the life that we're living in right now. For instance, we're saints. We are destined to unspeakable glory. And yet we struggle with ongoing sin and discouragement and, and all manner of, of, of spiritual maladies and afflictions. God is Emmanuel, God with us, but sometimes we feel spiritually dry and even what we might call deserted by the Lord. And we say with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? It doesn't seem to square uh, we are assured that we are safe and secure uh, under the protection of our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, we see in Revelation also that we may have to suffer persecution and some of his saints will be martyred. In fact, as Jesus addresses the early church, martyrdom has already happened for one of their pastors. And he warns that more will follow. Our, our identity in Christ is that we are citizens of heaven. We are the new Jerusalem. But our present experience in this world, the first heaven, the first earth, is that oftentimes we're despised, we're ridiculed, we're misunderstood. We're subject to just natural affliction as well as spiritual oppression as well. We see in Revelation that we are the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride for her bridegroom. <laughs> but when we look at the church today, we don't appear all that radiant. Uh, we don't appear uh, in uh, all that glorious. And some churches are more afflicted and more, uh, more uh, in, in shambles than others. And yet, the Lord Jesus, as he walks among the lampstands, he addresses churches that are, in some cases, kind of a mess. And yet, uh, that is that temporal picture that's a paradox of what we will yet be. It also, we, we, we find in chapter 11, we are those two witnesses. Remember the two faithful witnesses that, that bore witness and, and could not be touched until they had completed their testimony. And then they were killed and left in the street for three and a half days, and the entire world rejoiced and celebrated until they rose again. And the world was struck with fear. Well, the best understanding I can come up with from, from the study that I've done is that's us. That's the church in our testimony to the world saying that we are safe and secure and sound, proclaiming that truth until our testimony is complete. And yet, there is that martyrdom that comes for many in the church. 
over the, over the, uh, over the centuries. And so there's a bit of a paradox. Um, and Revelation tells us, as you read it, it tells you expect opposition. Expect persecution. Expect difficulty. It's essential if you read this that you pay attention to the kind of life, the realistic picture that we find in the book of Revelation. Over and over, Jesus gives his church the calls to endure, to persevere, to overcome, to conquer. And these calls indicate that there will be opposition that must be endured, overcome, and conquered. But in the meantime, we we could suffer persecution, and some do suffer martyrdom. And if we ignore these pictures and these calls that we find in the book of Revelation, we're going to be caught by surprise when it hits us. And it's likely to shake our faith. I have a saying, expectation determines response. You know, some have said expectation determines outcome. Not necessarily, but it does determine your response. If you expect life to be easy and prosperous and, 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 and the world's going to love you and then they hate you and affliction comes, your response is going to be, wait a minute, that's not the way it was supposed to happen. And you're going to be caught by surprise, caught off guard, and it's going to knock you off your moorings. But if you read the book of Revelation and you come away and say, the world is going to hate us, I expect that. I expect uh, that there will be uh, hardship and there will be affliction, there will be opposition coming from a number of different directions. When it comes, you will not be taken by surprise and you'll know what to do about it. You'll run to your Savior, your champion, your protector, the Lord Jesus. So we need to keep our focus on the security that we see for the church in the book of Revelation that were held firmly in the hand of God realizing that we can't see his hand. We can't see and sometimes don't feel that protection, but that is more real than what we can see and what we can feel and what we can touch. So we need to look at our lives. We need to look at the circumstances uh, through the eyes of faith. And that faith needs to be informed by what we read here in the book of Revelation. So we need to look at our lives with a true perspective. But secondly, we need to look at our enemies in their true colors. Now, a very quick review. How many times in the book of Revelation do we find the Antichrist mentioned? Anybody know? One person says one. Another person says one. Somebody else is holding up a zero very tentatively. Antichrist appears four times in 1 John. But John, who wrote the book of Revelation, never mentions the Antichrist. He mentions the beast, the false prophet, Babylon, the prostitute, and of course, Satan, the dragon. Satan's three primary influences in this world that we have to contend with are the beast and the false prophet and the prostitute. Satan himself is that vile serpent, that, that dragon, that, that uh, accuser of the brothers. But as we read the book of Revelation, we, we read of the beast, particularly in chapters 13 and 14. Uh, and the beast, I believe, refers primarily to the power of human governments. Now, government was established by God. And Scripture says that the, the rulers are God's servants to, to, uh, to be a blessing to the world. But the reality is, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and there is no human government that can provide for us the kind of hope, the kind of stability, the kind of fulfillment, the kind of satisfaction, the kind of utopia our hearts long for. That's, that's heaven. 
but no government can ensure that. Generally, a good government restrains evil. It, it ensures order. It provides stability. But again, things are not always as they appear. You can have the appearance of all these things being uh, stable and, and orderly, and underneath you can find all manner of different realities. We can be lulled into putting our hopes in these human institutions. Even, even in our country, we, we, we elect our officials, and we can, uh, if we just elect Christian rulers, Christian governors, and Christian mayors, and Christian presidents, and senators, and then things will be great. No, it won't. Because even if they are doing their very best with sincerity, there's no way to make the government be perfect. And if we put our hopes in our government, whatever it might be, we're being lulled into a false sense of security. Um, Psalm 146, verse 3 says, put, no trust, or put not your trust in princes in the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. Your government, your leaders, your elected officials are not your saviors or your redeemers or your messiahs. They're your servants and they're your authority, uh, but we must see government in its biblical perspective. So government can never be our savior. But in some cases, governments become a source of persecution and trial for the church. That's starting to happen in some places in our country, but it's nothing compared to many, many places around the world and throughout her history. And as we read in the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth conspire together to make war against the Lamb, against God, and against His people. So we don't want to trust in government as our Savior, but we also should not be terrified of government when they are persecuting. Just think about that. These kings of the earth are going to gather together. They're going to form an alliance. They're going to give their power to the beast, it says. They're going to wage war against the lamb, and, and, and the Lord's going to destroy them. They'll be ultimately conquered. The beast is not going to succeed. Now, with that, armed with that awareness, armed with that perspective, early believers could go to the lions and sing hymns of praise. They could be tied to stakes and burned alive, rejoicing in God's grace and goodness. They could experience crucifixion as their Savior. And Peter, you remember, said, I'm not worthy to be uh, put to death the same way my Lord was. And so they crucified him upside down. But armed with the awareness and the reality of what uh, our enemy is and what is ultimately going to happen to him, we can stand with courage and with endurance. And so, so Revelation gives us an eternal perspective on the beast on human governments. And also, uh, we, we read of the false prophet, primarily in chapter 16, and that uh, is the influence of false religions, of, of religious deception. Now, we, we know there, there are uh, false religions like Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and uh, uh, so many animisms and so many others, but they're also counterfeits of Christianity. Whether it's the smells and bells of Roman Catholicism that preaches a salvation by what you do, by your works, and not by grace alone through faith alone, or the signs and wonders and prosperity message of the, uh, of, of the uh, word of faith people, and they, they describe these impressive experiences, and you're like, I, you know, I can't tell you you didn't have the experience, but you remember Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we uh, in your name uh, prophesy and, 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 and cast out demons and perform many miracles? Word of faith. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't do those. He says, 
Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And so that's, those experiences are no sign of faithfulness and truth. Or the promise of the health and wealth of the prosperity gospel that are counterfeits of the biblical gospel that do not call you to repent of your faith and place your trust solely in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus to atone for our sins and to give us a righteousness before God. Prosperity gospel is trying to give you a heaven on earth, but it's not making you fit for heaven. Or civic religion. You know what civic religion is? It's the idea that if we just hang the Ten Commandments up in the courthouse and everybody's okay with that and we we enforce some kind of a moral code and we say a prayer in public meetings, uh, then we'll be fine. We're not calling people to repent of sin. We're not applying those Ten Commandments as Pastor Mark has been doing. Uh, We're not using those Ten Commandments to show people they desperately need to run to a Savior. There's a civic religion that that is uh, important to contribute to a, a, a social order. Some of our founding fathers said, without civic religion, democracy can never work. And so we see democracy is the goal, and civic religion is the means to make it happen. Well, without the gospel, we go to hell. And that matters a whole lot more than what kind of government we have. It's heaven we're after, not heaven on earth. All right? So all these, uh, all these forms of religion that can inoculate us to our need for a Savior can fall under the rubric of the false prophet. And we must not be taken in by these sensational claims or by popular public sentiment. But rather, we must hold fast to the words of the prophecy of this book, as we read in chapter 22. But a third enemy that comes at us, at the church, is Babylon, the great prostitute. In chapter 17, we find, this, uh, we find Babylon described And Johnson says here that the idolatrous allure of material affluence and social acceptance uh, is is a description. That is what Babylon is, this this material affluence, this social acceptance. It's it's the, uh, uh, the, the seduction of prosperity and pleasure. The beast brings persecution. The false prophet brings deception. Babylon brings seduction. The attractions and the entertainments, and the wealth, and the prosperity, the Corvette that uh, tried to snag Pastor Mark's heart this past week. Uh, it's, it's saying, come, come, you can have it, you can have it now. The commerce, the technology, the climbing the ladder of success, uh, these can be great servants for good without question. But if you read chapter 18, you see the merchants of the earth and the kings and the, and the seafarers weeping and wailing because Babylon has fallen. Do you remember reading about the Great Depression in 1929 when the stock market crashed? What were stockbrokers doing when they watched their entire world fall apart? They were jumping out of the windows in Wall Street committing suicide because life without their treasure was no longer worth living. And that is a picture of what it is to be seduced by Babylon and then let down when she falls. And Babylon falls over and over again throughout history, but there will be an ultimate collapse once and for all. And the the people of this world, they sell their souls for these luxuries. Uh, they, they, They believe this is what's really real. This is what truly matters. But Revelation tells us that Babylon's a prostitute. 
We have the bride of Christ, the true church, the people who are beloved by Jesus. And then we have this, this, this prostitute offering a counterfeit of the satisfaction and fulfillment that only Christ can give. Her prosperity never satisfies, and it cannot last. So there are three great dangers that we find in the book of Revelation that, uh, that, that afflict the church in our day. One is persecution, represented by the beast, primarily human governments. The second is deception, represented by the false prophet, which is religions of various kinds, but most dangerous are those where Satan has uh, disguised himself as an angel of light that give a form of the gospel but devoid of its power. And then thirdly, Babylon, the seductive pleasures of this world. Persecution, deception, seduction. Which one do you think is a greater problem for Grace Baptist Church and Taylors in the year 2022, 2023? Persecution is not really part of our daily experience. And to be honest with you, I think most of us probably are not falling for word of faith teaching or prosperity gospel. But are we seduced by Babylon? If you don't recognize how Babylon can entertain us and seduce us and ensnare us, you're not paying attention. Satan doesn't care how he defeats us. As long as he defeats us, he can defeat us through oppression and persecution through deception or seduction. Any one of them will work just fine, and that's what we need to be aware of. We need to be aware by putting on the lenses that are provided in the book of Revelation. We need, we need love that, that abounds in discernment and knowledge, we read in Philippians chapter 1. We also read of Satan. He is a vile and deceptive, seductive, malicious foe. But he's also defeated, and he knows it. Let me say it again. Satan is defeated, and he knows it. Jesus crushed the serpent's head. And we read that Satan has been bound and cast into the abyss. That doesn't mean that Satan has no activity at all. It means he cannot stop the church from carrying out its, its mission. Jesus is going to build a church, his church. He's building his church, and the very gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But even though Satan has been bound, Jesus told his disciples, I saw Satan falling like lightning when they went out to preach. He's still dangerous. It's like a snake when you, you, you cut his head off and you think, okay, snake's not dangerous anymore. I, I knew a young man who was 16 years old who drove his truck over a rattlesnake several times. And then he went to pick it up so he could make himself a snakeskin belt and it bit him on the hand and he spent a month on a ventilator in intensive care nearly killed him. Satan is a dangerous foe, even though he's a defeated foe, and we dare not ignore that reality. So, Revelation tells us that we're to look differently at our true condition. We're to look differently at uh, uh, our, our, our enemies in their true colors. And then we're to look at unbelievers in their true condition. Some of those heartbreaking things you'll ever read anywhere is what we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, where the kings of the earth, it said the powerful, the rich, but also the poor and the slaves are crying out. All men are crying out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Let that sink in. Think about that scene. Think about the utter 
desperation that John is describing is these men, great and small, powerful, rich, poor, free, slave, all earthly supports knocked out from under them, and they're desperate for some place to hide from the wrath of God. Today, they're filled with pride. There's all manner of confidence and bravado and self-sufficiency. There's a, the, the men are, feel free to mock the very idea of God and that a God would hold them accountable for their sins. But on the great day of judgment, they're going to be filled with terror and even desperate to find somewhere to hide from the wrath of God. Let me just say, if, if you're not a Christian, you don't want to be there that day. You don't want any part of that. And we don't want you to have any part of that. And the only way to avoid that, the rocks cannot hide you. The only thing that can hide you from the wrath of the Lamb is the blood of the Lamb, which you must run to him now, because on that day it will be too late. So Jesus appeals, come, come. Whoever wants to drink of the, uh, freely of the water of life, let him come. Why would you wait? Why would you risk that terrible day. One day we read in chapter 20 that all men will stand before this great white throne judgment. All the dead, small and great, will stand before the throne. Dead will give up its dead. And the, the, the sea will give up its dead. Death and Hades will give up their dead. And they will all be judged by what's written in the books. But then there's another book, the book of life. If your name's written in the book of life, what's written in the books cannot hurt you. But if you're standing before God and all you have is what's written in the books, you're in a heap of trouble. If your name's not found in the book of life, it says you will be thrown in a lake of fire. This should produce in us deep concern for those we know who are not Christians. Who uh, John in chapter 3 says, God loved the world so much he gave his son that whoever believed in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then he says in verse 18, those, whoever believes has life, but whoever does not believe, or excuse me, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So if you are not a Christian, if you've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, John says you stand condemned already, and on that day you'll stand before the judgment seat of God and those books will be open, and everything that humiliates and embarrasses you, everything you're ashamed of, everything you ought to be ashamed of, will be read out, and you'll be judged, and you don't want that, and we don't want that for you. In chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus was out in the marketplace. He looked at the crowd, and he saw these people going about their daily business, just, just, just going about their daily business. But he saw what nobody else sees. He saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep having no shepherd. That word harassed literally means belly up. If you know that a sheep, when he, when he falls over and rolls on his back, he, do, he can't bend his knees. He doesn't have knees. And so he can't get himself back up. He has somebody, he needs a shepherd to come and pick him up. He is belly up. He's harassed. He's downcast. And he's helpless. And we see people walking around like they're living normal, healthy, prosperous lives, and Jesus sees something very, very different. Spiritually, how do you look at people? What do you see? Revelation, is what we read here, ought to fuel compassion 
for unbelievers in our hearts. The fourth thing that we're to look at, we're to look at our champion in his true glory. In chapter 4, we read of uh, uh, the throne room of God, and God the Father is seated on the throne, and all of heaven is bowing down and worshiping God the Father. Then we come to chapter 5, and we find that all of heaven and the living creatures and the angels are bowing down and worshiping the Lord Jesus, the lion who appears as a lamb who was slain. And the rest of the book of Revelation, the main character is Jesus Christ in his glory. He is the conquering champion in this story. Uh, as, as Johnson's book is entitled, The Triumph of the Lamb. And as you read through the book of Revelation, we find all manner of descriptions of the Lord Jesus that ought to fortify our faith if we're paying attention. For instance, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. He's the first and the last and the beginning and the end. What does that mean? It means he's eternal. It means he's the one who makes all things new, he says in chapter 21. In fact, in chapter 22, it says he's the one who's coming soon. He's forever, and he'll take us to himself forever. He's also the faithful witness. We read that in chapter 1 and verse 5. Jesus is the faithful witness which means his words are trustworthy and they're true. You can believe everything Jesus says. You can stake your life on it when he holds forth promises and says, if you endure, if you overcome, this is what I will give you. You can take that to the bank. You can be certain that he will fulfill his promises. Why? Because he's faithful and he's true. His promises will inflame our hearts, inspire us so that we can endure to the very end. But his warnings are also faithful and true. And when he executes judgment twice in Revelation, we see his wrath poured out, and he's declaring judgment on the wicked, and the proclamation of the angels is his words are faithful and true. Sometimes a judge can convict the wrong person. Sometimes a human judge can make a mistake from the bench, but Jesus is no human judge. And his judgments are faithful, and they're true. He is also called the Son of Man, he means, which means he has all power and authority, that he deserves our absolute and immediate obedience. He's also worthy of our absolute trust and our complete confidence as the Son of Man. He's also called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In Revelation 5, they're weeping. Who is worthy to open the scrolls and to read the contents of these scrolls, to break these seven seals? And what we find is these seals and then the, the bowls and the trumpets are the, un, uh, the outpouring of the wrath of God. Who's worthy to do that? And then we see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus. He is worthy to open the scrolls. He is worthy to execute or to break the seals and to execute the judgment of God in the, in the scrolls, the seals and the bowls and the trumpets of God's wrath. But as John looked, when they said, look, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah, he looks and he sees a lamb that had been slain. Jesus is presented to us as the one who cleanses us from all of our sins with his own precious blood. He judges sin and condemns it and condemns those who are yet in their sins, but we are cleansed by his blood. We are clothed in his righteousness. 
He, he conquers his enemies. And he won his great victory. He crushed the, the head of Satan. But the great paradox is that he did it at the cross. What appeared to be the greatest possible defeat, his death actually turned out to be the greatest possible triumph. And all that happens in the book of Revelation was secured at Calvary when Jesus willingly went to the cross and laid down his life for us. He crushed the serpent's head. He paid the penalty for our sins. He purchased for himself a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. He is our lamb who was slain. He is also the captain of the armies of heaven. As you look into chapter 19, we see the Lord Jesus mounted on a white horse, riding in triumph. And it says in righteousness, he judges and makes war on his enemies who are also our enemies. And he defeats those enemies and he wins a glorious triumph. And it's interesting because It says that the saints are also there riding on white horses with him, but Jesus is the one who fights the battle. They're just there to watch. He defeats all of our enemies. He will come. Now, when we look around us, it it looks like the bad guys are winning, right? I mean, it looks like things are slipping away. Again, if you were to, 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 to... uproot yourself and go live in, let's say, Iran, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, there'd be no expectation that the church would look triumphant. The church is hiding. The church looks beleaguered. It's endangered. It's threatened. And the mass of the culture is saying, this is what's true. Christ is not. And it looks like the bad guys are winning. And Jesus is the champion. He is the captain of the armies of heaven. He will come. He will come in triumph. And he will win the victory. We also look at the Lord Jesus as the ever-present one. Walking among the lampstands. He's present in his churches. He's in our midst during our joys and our sorrows, our successes, and also our failures. And each one of the seven churches, he says, I know your deeds. And he describes where they are doing well and where they're not doing well. And he appeals to them in love and mercy. He counsels them. He calls them to repent where that's needed. And he brings word of comfort and encouragement. His eyes are like a a flaming fire. Nothing is hidden from his observation. And yet his words are filled with tenderness. And compassion. He exposes our weakness, but he shores up our frailties and he calls us to trust him and to follow him because he's rich in compassion. Jesus' presence was not good news to Adam and Eve after they sinned. They heard the Lord coming in the cool of the, of the day and they hid. But Jesus' presence in the churches is wonderful news and it's reassuring to us as he holds forth these promises, these blessings to all who would continue to be faithful to the very end. But Jesus is also pictured for us as our bridegroom, our husband. He loves his bride with a greater love, a more intense love than anything we could ever comprehend. He came, he set his love on us before the world even began. Loved us from all eternity. 
And so, because of his great love for us, he demonstrates that love through, uh, by, by humbling himself, by taking on human flesh. We, we, we sang in the, in the hymn, O Come All You Faithful, he abhorred not the virgin's womb. And nobody talks like that anymore. And you sing that and you go, what does that even mean? Well, abhor means to despise or to hold something in contempt. And basically what it means is Jesus became a zygote. That's the very, very first thing that when, when, when the, the eggs come together, fertilized, and then developed into a fetus. And he was there for nine months inside his mother's womb or belly. And he did not hold that as something beneath him, even though it was beneath him. Even though he is God in glory in all eternity, he did not think it out of place for him to condescend to becoming not just a baby, but a fetus inside his mother's body until he became, was born. That's, that's astounding. But that was a manifestation of the greatness of his love for us. I like comfort. I, I, I like, I don't like being uncomfortable. I like being where I feel comfortable. Jesus never felt comfortable on this earth. Not for a moment. Because he knew where he came from. And remember John 7, he, or 17, he, he prays, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world began. He knew that glory, and he knew for those 33 years that glory had been laid aside. You talk about being outside your comfort zone. But our bridegroom loved us so much, he would pay such a high bride price to make us his, to redeem us from our sin, to purchase for himself a bride, and he delights in his bride. Last week in chapter 22, we, we, we saw the church crying out, Lord Jesus, come. The spirit of the bride say, come. And, and, I, and I pointed out, I, I'm convinced that Jesus is more eager to come for his bride than the bride is to have him come for us. He loves us with a greater intensity than we could ever love him. And he's more eager to take us to himself than we are even to be taken. Let that sink in. It's pretty amazing to think about. But he is also the one we see who inspires awestruck wonder throughout heaven. We read over and over again, all of heaven seems to stop and adore the Lord Jesus. Whatever else is going on, suddenly uh, the four living creatures and the elders and the angels and, 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 and myriads and myriads of thousands of thousands are crying out, worthy is a lamb who was slain. All of heaven is filled with amazement and delight in the presence of Jesus. Johnson says this, a little bit longer. Quote, he says, please do not be content to come away from studying the book of Revelation merely with solutions to some of the puzzles that always troubled you in John's visions. It's not about solving puzzles. Please, please do not leave the book of Revelation until it is etched more deeply into your heart. It's vivid portraits of your Savior and Lord and until you've grasped more deeply the difference that each portrait makes to your relationship with Jesus and your response to every trial that he leads you through, that he walks with you through on your pilgrimage. Revelation should etch deeply in our hearts who Jesus is to us, in relationship to us, and how he walks us through the trials of this life and ought to change the way we look upon these things. A study of Revelation should produce in us a greater awe and wonder and worship 
and confidence in our champion, the Lord Jesus. He also, uh, we ought to look at ourselves in our true beauty. Now again, sometimes the church is not the radiant bride that we're presented in Scripture and that we're called to be. Sometimes we're a mess. You read the, the, the epistles to the early church, uh, and, and sometimes they were a mess. Read Corinthians. They were at each other's throats. Euodia and Syntyche, two of the best women in Philippi, couldn't get along. And on and on it goes. Ephesus, Paul warned the Ephesian elders that from among their own midst would savage wolves arise that would devour their own flock if they could. And then later Jesus commends them that they have not stood, uh, are not allowed false teaching in their midst. But he said, but they had left their first love. We, we see these failures described in the letters to these churches, this, this lack of love. In some cases, they did tolerate false teaching. In some cases, there was flagrant immorality as they, they, they tolerated that, that, that wicked woman Jezebel. There was idolatry. There was prideful self-sufficiency when the church at Laodicea said, we are, uh, we are rich and have no need of anything. And Jesus says, you don't even realize you're poor and wretched and naked and blind. They were lukewarm and about to be spewed out of his mouth. How is it possible that the bridegroom can delight in a bride like that? And yet, Revelation tells us he does. Because he's not finished the work that he's begun, but he will finish it. He does delight in us because he knows that he will complete the work he began. Even when he wrote the church in Laodicea and said, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth, then he says, repent. He says, I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. If you'll open the door, I'll come in and dine with you and you with me. And then he says this. He says, those whom I love, including the church at Laodicea, I reprove and discipline. That's an amazing, amazing Savior we have. He invites us to return, to commune with him. He delights in his bride. In chapter 7, we see the church pictured as this great multitude clothed in white robes, worshiping, crying out, salvation belongs to the Lamb. And this is vast multitude that no one can number from every nation and tribe and people and language. And they're rejoicing in the salvation of God and of the Lamb. And you remember those white robes represent the righteousness that Jesus gives us. We are radiant and beautiful because of his righteousness alone. And you remember the enemies of God receive the mark of the beast, but chapter 7 says that the children of God, the saints of God, receive the sealing of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 9 it speaks of this mark or the seal of God on our foreheads. And again, emphasizing once again that we're safe and we're secure in the protection of our bridegroom, of our Lord. And then the final two chapters, we find this glorious picture of the new Jerusalem. Turn with me to Revelation 21, if you would. Some want to interpret this that the new Jerusalem is where we will live, it will be our habitation in the new heaven and the new earth. But in Revelation 21, John says this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
New Jerusalem is the bride. It's not the bride chamber. It's not the place Jesus has prepared for us that he speaks of in John chapter 14. That's new, that's new heaven and new earth. New Jerusalem is the bride. And so when we get this incredible description of these vast dimensions and of the, the, the gold and the, and, the, and the jewels and the pearls, gates of pearl and all the rest, that is describing the beauty and the radiance and the wonder of the bride of Christ, the people of God in whom he delights. That's the beauty you and I will be adorned with for all eternity. It, it, it defies comprehension or explanation. Again, uh, Dennis Johnson said, Jesus calls us to see his church through his eyes and to have our hearts gripped by her beauty as his heart is enraptured by his love for her. Jesus' heart is enraptured by his love for you and me, his bride. I don't know what to do with that sometimes. It's beyond my ability to grasp, but we must grasp that. Who would have guessed that we could ever look so good to the Son of Man whose flaming eyes search minds and hearts? He sees everything and yet rejoices over us with loud singing and delights in his bride and and eagerly looks for his bride to join him. The eager longing of the church, come, Lord Jesus, and yet Jesus is more eager to come than we are to receive him. So the book of Revelation should transform the way that we look at our present situation. We should see our present situation in its true perspective. We should see our enemies in their true colors. We should see unbelievers in their true condition. We should look at our champion in his true glory. And we should see our own lives, the church, in its true beauty. Things are not always as they appear, are they? We can't see these things with the eye of sight, but we can see them. We can lay hold of them in the eye of faith. So let me look quickly. What are some three ways we should respond to what Revelation teaches us? First of all, we must endure, recognizing that we will suffer. Many churches that Jesus addressed of the seven churches, some are already suffering persecution. And again, one pastor had been martyred. And many, many more would follow. In chapter 6, we see the souls of the martyred saints crying out, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood and judge those who put us to death? Persecution was a reality then. It's been a, pers- it's been a reality throughout church history, and it's a reality today. And people who do this sort of uh, research said more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than in the 19th centuries before that. I haven't gone back and counted, but I'll take their word for it. The world is increasingly hostile to believers, and we should not expect that to change. So we must be prepared to endure. We may not be familiar with those things firsthand, but talking with brothers in India or Nepal and realizing the, 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 very, the great care they must take to avoid running afoul of the beast, of the persecution that can come speaking with brothers and sisters in China who have endured persecution, reading of the voice of the martyrs and others, of the price many have paid and are paying because they denied themselves and they've taken up their cross daily and followed Jesus. We 
we don't understand those things as a daily reality. But Hebrews says that we should sympathize with those who are in prison as if we were in prison with them, which means we ought to look for ways to alleviate their suffering. We should pray for them for protection, but even more than that, for boldness, for courage, for the fruitfulness of the gospel. Pray that their, that their affliction would not be in vain, but that God would, uh, that, that if, a, if a corn of wheat falls to the ground, it would bring forth much fruit. Pray they'd be faithful to the very end, and we must be prepared to endure to the end. Secondly, we must remain pure when we're tempted to compromise. And we're not as likely to experience that direct frontal assault and that violent persecution, but we are likely to be seduced by the prostitute Babylon. We need to see things as they really are, not as they appear. We need to look at the world around us with the eyes of faith. Revelation helps us do that. And so I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We need to interpret the world around us in light of Revelation. We don't interpret Revelation in light of the world around us. Revelation gives us an interpretive lens by which we can see the world, and we can identify Babylon and false prophets, false teaching, false religions. We can identify false dependence on earthly human governments. Some are seduced by the pleasures and prosperity of Babylon. Some are seduced by the false teaching, the false views of reality they're put out in the name of religion. Oh, it's okay to, to uh, you know, to uh, love whoever it is you love, even if the person happens to be of the same sex, because some religions say that. There are uh, uh, scholarly Christians who are saying, oh, the Bible's a little fuzzy here. No, it's not. It's not fuzzy at all. But there's a redefinition that takes place in our day. Uh, things are not as clear as we would like to think, they say. Scripture is quite clear, and we need to hold fast to the Word of God. He commends the church in Ephesus for their steadfastness, but even then they had left their first love. So we must hold firmly to the truth, and we must do so with love. Paul prays in, to the, uh, the Philippians that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, discernment. We need both, love and discernment. So whatever the attack, whatever the temptation, whatever the deception, we are called to stand fast and to, do, to endure and to overcome. And we can do so only as we rely on our champion, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Third way we should apply what Revelation teaches us is we need to bear witness to the world around us. We are waiting, come Lord Jesus, but we don't wait passively. We want to bring as many with us as we possibly can. The world poses many dangers, whether it's the beast or the false prophet or, or Babylon. But our response is not to hunker down in some kind of evangelical monasticism where we hide from the world so it can't touch us. We're to go out and impact the world for Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates are not an offensive weapon coming after the church. The gates of hell are to keep us out away from impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must be like those two faithful witnesses, which I believe describes the church in our witness to the world. And as we bear witness, we, we cannot be stopped until we are finished bearing witness until God's purposes are complete. And at that, at that point, the two witnesses were killed. 
and some Christians experience martyrdom. But astonishingly, after three and a half days of celebration over the death of those two witnesses, they rose again, and the entire world was gripped in fear. We need to see things the way Revelation presents them and not the way the eye and the senses present them. It'd be men and women who walk by faith, not by sight. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We're called to a ministry of reconciliation, to urge men and women to be reconciled to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to engage a dying world with the only hope for their souls, which is Christ. And as Jesus says, the time is short. That means we need to have a sense of urgency about it. And that might cost your comfort, might cost some convenience, might cost some security. It could cost you your life. But as Hebrews says, those who lay down their life for the Lord knew they would gain a better resurrection. And Revelation certainly presents that. So what's our confidence as we endure and as we proclaim the good news? Our confidence as we go to a world that doesn't really want to hear about Christ. It's that Jesus will gather for himself a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the gates of hell will not prevail against him. I said from the outset that the theme of the book of Revelation is that Jesus conquers all of his and our enemies. And he, he, he brings us into that victory. He shares that victory with us. And as you read the book, you have to keep that in mind because it, it appeals to your imagination. It's vivid with all these symbols. And it calls us to picture and imagine glorious scenes. But brothers and sisters, the reality is infinitely greater than whatever we can imagine. It really is. May God seal those realities to our hearts.